Race matters. 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 Like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands a long time after us. This land is a meeting place for sharing knowledge, for sharing stories and song, and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling tradition today. And every day here at FBI Radio, I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present. We are broadcasting from Redfern right now. Redfern is the birthplace of black theatre in this country. It's also a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. Welcome to Race Matters. This is a show hosted by people of colour, speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Darren Lasagas. I'm Tanya Ali. And today on the show, you're going to hear from Fijian Australian artist Jeff Wah. Go up, baby, leave that money maker. We coming for the checks. We coming for the paper. Take money, money, take money, money, money. Take money, money, take money, money, money. Go this is her just-released single, Medusa, off her forthcoming EP, Tropics. Uh, she's been here on Gadigal Land this week, and I sat down with her to talk writing music as self-care, shifts she's seen in the music industry throughout her career, and her eternal love of Missy Elliott. Very, very excited for you to hear that chat later on in the show. And you may have noticed uh, an extra little bonus episode uh, hit our podcast feed this week. We're finally able to share the conversation Sada Khan had with Tamika Tai and Alicia Johnson at the Australian Museum last month, just ahead of Invasion Day. Uh, the panel was titled You Can't Speak For Us. Uh, it was our first Race Matters live event in a whole year and you're going to hear a bit of that convo today as well. But holy shit, Darren, what a week it has been. I know, I hate to say that, but you know, like Black Mirror episode in real life, like every day is a bloody Black Mirror episode, That's but true. fully this. But yeah, yes, as you're likely very aware already, uh, Facebook has implemented a nationwide ban on news pages on the platform. It's in response to the government's proposed mandatory news bargaining code. I mean, like the ABC page is down, lots of music media is down, um, FBI radio is down, and while it is an inconvenience for us, we still have our main platform here on FM and digital radio. Uh, This isn't the same for black media. It's not the same for First Nations media. First Nations Media Australia, they put out a statement this week explaining what it means for them. Basically, around half of First Nations Media Australia member organizations have had their Facebook pages blocked. Um, So this is from their statement. First Nations media services are not the same as commercial outlets and should not be negatively impacted by an industry-wide response to corporate interests. Um, And this is why. First Nations media organizations, uh, they provide essential information services to First Nations communities. And many of these organizations have built strong uh, social media followings as a forum uh, for community engagements uh, on topics relevant to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander audiences. Um, And it's a relationship that exists quite uniquely and intrinsically to these communities. So the silencing of sovereign voices um, in this way, it's unacceptable and inconsistent with Facebook's messaging in celebration of Black History Month um, Mm. and the platform's mission to empower uh, people to build community. Um, So this is what they want. First Nations Media Australia, they urge the Australian government to seek an immediate uh, resolution to its conflict with Facebook and to protect the First Nations media industry from further negative impacts. And um, furthermore, First Nations Media Australia, they call on the Australian government to recognise the importance of First Nations news and journalism by providing support for the production of news content essential to First Nations communities as proposed in First Nations Media Australia's pre-budget submission uh, this year, 2021. So if you're planning to contact your local member about this ban, maybe you already have, do it again. Uh, make sure to make direct reference to this statement. You can find it at firstnationsmedia.org.au. Totally. It is so wild how, you know, 
the collateral damage from this ban just extends like oh. it's horrific. Yeah. And there are so many people who rely on Facebook, especially I feel like our generation where like we've got all of the different social media accounts. It, it hasn't impacted us to the same extent that it would our parents' generation, yeah. like who, you know, many of which only use Facebook as a way of keeping in touch, but also as a way of keeping across things. And, you know, like a lot of, organizations in the media and news organizations don't even have websites anymore. No. Like Facebook is an uh, open source platform basically for them to be able to push out the news that they need to, to their communities. So yeah, it's really, it's not on, um, definitely get in touch with your local member or your federal MP, uh, and let them know that this is just totally not acceptable. Something that's been playing heavily on my mind this week as well is what's been unfolding on Twitter and over at Gimlet in particular in the United States. Look, it's a long story, <laughs> but I'm going to break it down for you quickly towards the end of the show because I've gone deep. I feel really emotionally involved in this whole thing and how it's unfolded. And I honestly just need to get it off my chest. I mean, we're here for you, Tanya. Thank you. Like, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> Uh, you are listening to Race Matters. Up next, you'll be hearing a sneak peek of our bonus episode that I mentioned earlier, uh, recorded live at the Australian Museum last month. It's a conversation between Sada Khan, Tamika Tai, and Alicia Johnson. You can't speak for us. I only wanna please you. and Planet Vegeta teaming up for Please You. So nice. This is Race Matters. I'm Tanya Ali. Oh, Sierra vibes on that one. Yeah. I was kidding. Yeah. Oh, so good, so Becca. Good. Uh, yeah, I'm Dan Sargas, and last month, uh, Sada Khan hosted a conversation with Alicia Johnson and Tamika Tai. It was live at the Australian Museum for Nali Warui Mari. Uh, we Stand Strong. It's an event that happened in the days before Invasion Day. If you missed the conversation, look, um, not going to lie, you missed out. Uh, it was essential knowledge and labor being generously shared with an audience. But uh, luckily, thanks to the Australian Museum, we're able to share the whole conversation with you. It's available now on our podcast feed, fbiradio.com forward slash race matters or wherever you get your podcasts. But we wanted to share a bit of it on the show for you today. Um, a content warning. This excerpt contains mentions of sexual assault and violence in the context of dispossession. Uh, here's to make a tie right now. You know, as black people, we always get asked every January, what do you do on January 26? You know, and it's, it's, it's hard, it's a tough subject, but I always like to pose the question back, why do you celebrate? Because for me, I don't. Um, but for me, my question is, do you celebrate, is it the um, refugee detention that you celebrate? Is it, you know, tell me, because that's what this country is. This country is um, a country that doesn't acknowledge its first people. Um, it's a country that has allyships with countries um, on a foreign um, level that um, <laughs> executes war crimes in countries and then holds their refugees in detention when they try and seek refuge in another country. So what is it that you celebrate? Uh, because if it's not the refugee detention, is it the mental health rates of all Australians? Or is it the domestic violence? Or do you celebrate the deaths in custody? Or do you celebrate the women that die at the hands of the men in this country? Is it the kids who are homeless? Is it the rest of the homeless population? Or do you, do you celebrate, hang on, let me ask, do you celebrate the kids who are locked up at the age of 12? What is it? What do you celebrate? You tell me. The conversation's now grown into abolish the date altogether. Like, we don't want to change the date. We just want it to... We just don't, we don't want to celebrate on any day because there's nothing to be celebrated because nothing has changed. Colonisation is ongoing and for many other reasons. And I've even seen mob online, frontline mob even saying, like, look, 
I was the one five years ago chanting, change the date. And I've done the learning to recognize that's not what I want. That's not what we want. You know, this is change. And I've done that learning. And I think a lot of mob have as well. Like, even I did. Like, I was sitting there going, like, yeah, change the date. Hashtag change the date, whatever. And then, you know, as we've all kind of spoken and, you know, listened to each other within um, each other's communities as well, our critical thinking and our own um, collective consciousness has grown heaps and immensely too. And so that's within the space of five years. Why can't the rest of them come to that type of unlearning then as well. If we can do that in five years and go from change that and admit it as well, admit like, look, five years ago, I was singing something that's probably a bit more problematic now, change the date. So why do you think other people can't, like white people can't even just like grasp the first step of unlearning? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, it, it comes back to that um, conversation we had a little earlier about coming to the table and understanding um, what, our thoughts are on who we are as people um, on our terms, you know. Do we really want a voice in government, in a government that's illegal? Or do we really want to recognise our sovereignty? Um, so understanding um, that we don't want to be at a table that we don't feel comfortable at. So if you want to yarn with us, you come sit with us. Um, so that, that would be the first step of un unlearning. Uh, but yet, you know, within our own communities, we're, we're learning new things um, ourselves as, as we go, you know. Um, we're always talking with our, you know, with our older people and with, with our with selves, you know, within our, our sisterhood. Um, so, you know, we're, we're learning that ourselves. You know, as you said, Sarah, five years ago, you know, majority of us would have been having that conversation about change the date rather than, um, you know, what's happening at the moment, the, the demands to abolish the date. Um, but, you know, having that conversation, coming to the table when we, when we want to talk um, and on our terms. But I think, you know, moving into, into the conversation and into the demands of um, abolishing the date for myself, personally, um, now I look at the calendar and I think, well... You pick a day, if it's not January 26th, you pick a day that you want to celebrate all of those things that I spoke about earlier, because <laughs> they're all issues that we still need to fix. Um, and, you know, we've, we've got real healing to do in this country to begin with. Um, so whenever you want to celebrate, you let me know, and I'm pretty sure um, we would be able to find something on the calendar um, over 230 years of um, resistance, but 230 years of a colonial war, there would be a massacre. There would be a, a rape of a black woman. There would be kids buried in the ground with their heads kicked off. So you pick a day you want to celebrate this country that's illegal, this country that continues to oppress not only black people, but every person of colour. You, you know, you pick a day and we, we are continuously oppressed on every day on the calendar. That's Tamika Tai in conversation with Alicia Johnson and Sarah Khan, recorded live at the Australian Museum on Thursday, January 21. You can catch the conversation in its entirety over on our podcast feed right now, fbiradio.com forward slash race matters or wherever you get your podcasts. We couldn't recommend it more. It's absolutely necessary listening, to be honest, for any settler living on this stolen land. You're listening to Race Matters with Daryl Osagas and Tanya Ali. Uh, up next, you're going to hear a conversation with, until recently, Mianjin-based rapper Jesswa. Yeah, Jess was in town this week and I caught up with her about her staunch forthcoming EP, Tropics, her journey into making music and her reflections on the music industry in so-called Australia. I'm a savage, I'm a cunt. Now what a bad bitches, please move to the front. I want that ass bit, baby plump. Now all the bad bitches, please move to the front. I bought your album, now I want a refund. Now all the bad bitches, please move to the front. I'm a savage, I'm a cunt. Now all the bad bitches, please move to the front. This life of blessings. You are listening to Race Matters. I'm I already said my name. Did I say my name? I'm Darren Lasagas. <laughs> 
I'm Tanya Ali. And yeah, I caught up with that very musician you just heard, Jeswa, this week on music as self-care, her love of Missy Elliott, and also her love of local legend Fuzzy, aka Christina oh, Agoli. I looked up to Fuzzy so much. Me too. I mean, she was the only person of colour who was working in music media, or one of the only, yeah. like, on screen, just there, like, Jess talks about, you know, seeing her interview all of her favourite oh, artists, and yeah. it's just like, that was powerful. One time when I was a teenager, I saw it in a news agency and I was starstruck. Oh my God. Well, Jess actually has a very similar story that you're going to hear. So heads up, there's a bit of strong language in this chat. Uh, here's Jess one now throwing back to some of her earliest memories of making music. I don't want to sound cliche or anything, but even when I was like real young, like around four, I would always have instruments in my hand and stuff. And I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea how to play them. I just was very attracted to them. And at my grandmother's house, there was always this um, giant piano there. And I would always go up to it and like try to play it, but not have any idea how to play it. I remember I even took a guitar into like my show and tell at school and just pretended like I knew how to play it. And I fully was just like strumming it along, like fully thinking that I'm like this artist at like when in grade one oh. and just for my show and tell, like, and then that people were like, I guess they would have been like, you cannot play that at all. <laughs> Look, therefore as well, I they was don't just know. like strumming all of the strings like this, sitting there, <laughs> showing and telling it. <laughs> it was wild. I was just, I, yeah, I just, I really was attracted to music. Like, and as I got older, I, music was like self-care for me, you know, like a way to work through everything I was going through, all my emotions. And it was just, it, it was something that just really changed my life, hey, like in such positive ways and opened up my life as well. And I think when, you know, you get to that stage, it's like, how am I going to survive and do this? <laughs> you know, at the start, it was just something that I did for my soul and like for me to, you know, relax and feel comfortable in this world. And then I got to a point where I'm like, oh, I better make money from this or else I can't survive, you know, so... Totally. Was it always hip hop that like drew you? Not, not always hip hop. Hey, like even I listened to a lot of Bob Marley. Like growing up, I just loved Bob Marley. Hey, it was always played around my house. A lot of reggae. Even like, like I heard a lot of Queen and like David Bowie when I was growing up too. Just random artists that I would always hear. But I was very intrigued by it. I was interested by it. But hip hop for me was something that changed my life. Because it was people talking about stories that I could relate to as well, you know? And it was like, I guess, growing up in Australia too, it's like when I was watching these hip-hop videos when I was little, I was like, holy shit, like, these people look like me. What the fuck? You know? <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, they're, they're talking about similar things that I've experienced, you know? So it was a genre where I felt like I could relate to, you know? But in terms of other genres, I was just, I love the sound. I love the... I just love music, you know. Do you remember, like, the first artist or music video or kind of song that you heard or looked at and you were like, I want to do that? I feel like it was, you know, a lot of Missy Elliott videos. Remember Rage? Like, would you, would you wake up on weekends? 100%. Yeah. Sometimes when you stayed up really late and, like, Rage started at, like, I don't know, 12 or something, yeah, I would, like, yeah. catch the – and that was, like, the real underground shit. I was like, whoa. That was wild. <laughs> and video hits, hey, yeah. with Fuzzy. Oh, my God. She was my hero. Totally. I, like, I, I like I saw her at this festival that we played and I was like – it was my partner. I was like, oh, my God, it's fuzzy. Like, it's fuzzy. <laughs> like, she was, like, from little watching her, like, interview everyone, Kanye West, like, everyone she interviewed. But the, I loved, I would wake up every single morning for video hits, like, at 6 a.m. on the weekends. I wouldn't see anyone. I wouldn't talk to my friends. I wouldn't talk to my family. I'm just like, I'm watching this. I'll just sit there and watch every single video that came through. But Missy Elliott's videos, I was like, just blown away. I think that hype Williams era was really interesting within like cinematography and hip hop. Mm. That was wild. Like the Busta Rhymes video. It was like this creepy sort of like not real world that was in, I don't know. It was cool. It was just like out of this world. It was like cartoons, vibes, but like music. 
and yeah, I was just like, I couldn't believe that this was a music video, you know? Mm. Yeah. I feel like that definitely comes across in your music videos as well, which we'll get to in a sec. Um, but let's talk about Tropics, your yeah. new EP. Congratulations on it. Thank you. Um, it feels like it's been a long time coming. Yeah. Um, tell me about the making of it. Yeah, it's been it's been quite a while, hey, like since I release, released my um one of the first songs I did, Savage. So it's been it's been a while. But personally I've just been trying to work on not just music but my own personal growth, like the self love that I have for myself and looking after myself has been a big thing for me recently because, you know, if you can do that and you have that self love, I, I believe that everything else just sort of comes smoothly after that. So yeah, I've just been loving myself, taking that time f to do that and really get to know who I am and be confident and proud of who I am. And then this project came came to life. It's song, Some of the songs on it are like from 2017. Some of them are from just in last year, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was like cool to pull this different mix of songs. But tr I wrote Tropics at a time in my life where I was really angry and like really full of rage. Like I just felt like, you know, I, I, I really wanted, I was like screaming and no one could hear me. It was like an intense time, you know? And just I, in the music industry, I felt like I was always getting overlooked and it was just so frustrating for me. So I wrote Tropics as like self-care for me, like to get to get myself through that time. I was getting shut down a lot and spoken down to and minimised and I, I think Tropics is a retaliation to that, you know. It gave me strength and I was like, no, I can't just take this, you know, treatment. Uh, I've, I can't just sit down and shut up. Like I've got to do something about it and I think writing this project is what saved me and like got me through that. I was like, and now I listen to the songs, I feel so fucking powerful <laughs> listening to them, you know. And they're like, that's why. That's why I think like the it's very lyrically heavy because I just had a lot to say and I had to you know get it out. And I felt like, you know, if on my first release, my first project, if I didn't make the songs lyrically heavy, like, will people even give me a chance? You know, so it was still a lot of, you know, the retaliation to the treatment, and then, you know, when people talk down to you all the time, like you feel bad about yourself you know and you're just like mm -hmm. second guessing yourself and questioning yourself so yeah I wanted to make something that made me feel very powerful and it is such a powerful EP um Venom the first single that you dropped from it came out last year and it's this searing call to arms kind of against that treatment that you're talking about yeah. in the music industry which is so widespread for black and brown folk yeah you say you wrote it in 30 minutes yeah tell me about writing it it was like when I first heard the um beat for it I was like whoa this is like so different to what I would normally rap on or and the kick drum goes in like a triplet like on the hit which is so mm. bizarre and I'm just like what who like why is this song like this and <laughs> I was like this could be like real interesting it's got that real like you know, you rock with it sort of energy, you know, it's slow, it's not something you would typically dance to, it's probably something that you would listen to personally. Like, on, I imagine, like, when I was young, like, when I would catch buses and stuff, I would just always be, like, listening to my music, pretending I was in a music video and stuff, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I would listen to stuff like that that was, like, sort of personal. It's something that you would listen to before work, after work, on the bus, on the train. And, um, yeah, I just wrote that verse straight away and I opened up my logic session and I had another verse on there as well. So I was like, yes, <laughs> I've re I've, re -reco I've recorded this other verse on there, like, um, 2017. So I had that and I was like, sweet, I'll take some lyrics out of that and re-record it. And I was like, it just needs a hook now. Like it just needs something not too wordy, like something that just like rides the beat, you know? Mm hmm and then, I, yeah, I just wrote that hook to come and get it. It's like, it just needs something like that, you know? Like one of those catchy pop songs. Yeah. Come and get it. Still waiting for the credit. Got venom in my lyrics. Bodies drop when I spit it. Come and get it. I speak it how I live it. I'll make the haters live it at the way that I kill it. Come and get it. Still waiting for the credit. Got venom in my lyrics. Bodies drop when I spit it. Come and get it. I speak it how I live it. 
I live it. I'll make the haters live it at the way that I kill it. I keep a bouncer like a pair of double D's. I'm awake when you sleep from the flights overseas. You've been in the game since you were 16, so I feel like you've seen a lot of change, even if it might be kind of like incremental and extremely gradual um, in the industry. What still needs to shift? I definitely feel like, you know, energy-wise, the music industry is really intense. And especially if you're not ready for it and you're younger, especially if you're a young woman in this industry, there are situations where you can be in that are very not safe, you know. I think what needs to shift is, like, it's like a people thing, you know. It's energies. It's a, it's 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 really bizarre industry like how people treat each other in this place it's like eating each other up like attacking each other constantly putting people down you know and then bringing people then playing shows your energy's up here and then you know it's down here and then it's up and it's just ping-ponging everywhere mm-hmm. so i think there's a lot that needs to shift people are overworked as well people are tired you know <clears throat> people it's it's definitely a people problem it's the people in um jobs that have the power to do things as well that needs to change you know I always try to like infiltrate with my people (laughs) everywhere (laughs) we go like I always want to work with people from my community people that I know that are amazing amazingly talented that you know, if I can get something, let's work together and let's do this together, you know, because they're only going to choose one of us, which sucks. But it will change eventually. Then they'll be like, we have to choose us all. Can't wait for that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Fingers crossed soon. Um, your love of performing live um, really comes through on the EP. And, you know, I had the pleasure of seeing you the other night um, in Sydney. And I feel like, yeah, your energy live is just something else. Did um, you you came to the show? Yeah. Did yeah. you see, which one did you the see? The first one. Damn, you should have seen the second one. Oh. Cuz I was so I was so tired. We yeah. just finished shooting the music video. Like we had a whole day shoot. I did soundtrack and then did the show. Yeah. But the second one I got like 40 minutes to recharge oh. and that one was so well, the first one was fire too. So. Oh, thank you. I was really like down on myself because I wanted to hit so much harder. I mean, but... it's a hard space to play in, right? Like, yeah. and even just speaking about you know the COVID landscape more generally, gigs have completely changed. Yeah, um, and I guess that's kind of what I wanted to ask. Like, how? Has it been not having that energy to bounce off performing live over the past year, and then? How is it now kind of playing these intimate shows that, to be honest, aren't really, like, suited for the music that you make? Yeah, it's fully – it's changed so much, hey. Mm. And, like, I guess how we interact with each other. You know, every time I I was playing shows before, it felt like between – Myself and everyone else that was on stage and the audience, it was like we were just having a conversation. Like, we were just chilling out. We were hanging out. And we felt like I always, always felt so close. But now it's like, I feel close to you, but I'm just like, are you okay? Yeah. You know, like, because I can't see anyone. Everyone's got masks on. Mm. So you can only, it's dark. Like you can only, you can't really see expression. You just got to try and, you know, hope that everyone's feeling okay. Mm. And like, I guess the thing that I love to do is entertain people and like make people feel like they're having a good time and that, you know, we can all relax in here. So it's very different. Like it's so different. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, hopefully we just get to have shows that are. Do you think Splendor will be on this year? Uh, I find it pretty hard to believe just because, like, it's so many people. And when it happens, though, it will be an explosion. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just it'll be too early this year, but maybe next year. And hopefully, like, those smaller festivals start coming back and we start to be able to, like, have – cool outdoor events where people can stand up and dance like I think that's something that was also missing from the show because not only did everyone have masks on no one could dance yeah you're all just like sitting down and I was like kind of trying to like bop along but I (laughs) felt weird about it like (laughs) you're all sitting down it's like a school that was actually after 
um, we went and got a beer last night after we finished shooting and one of the dancers was like, she just couldn't help herself. Hey, she was moving <laughs> and she just got told so many times, like, you cannot dance. Like, you must sit down or like, don't dance. And then all she wanted to do was dance. <laughs> <laughs> it was so it's so wild hey? yeah like, it's pretty bizarre I and mean, we played this one show where it's like everyone had to sit on the floor wow like i, I think it was last year or maybe it was this, i don't know i feel like the years are just melting into like, oh yeah life yeah but um everyone had to sit on the floor and like if you stood up like you had to leave like, you like a school dance. excursion. Yeah, it was school excursion vibes. And I was like, this is bizarre. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm just, like, jumping up and down. Like, my, even my DJ was like, fuck, this is weird. Hey, like, this is so – like, you feel silly up there. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how you do it. I was, like, very blown away by how you just commanded that space regardless of – the weird situation, but Thank I guess you, you kind of have to, hey? Thank you. Yeah, it was a cool space to play in. Yeah. Like, the whole the whole room was acoustically treated as well. Mm. So I was like, I was just set, telling the sound tech, just turn the bass up. Like, yeah, just turn the bass up. That's all it is. <laughs> but it was pretty nice. to Like, the sound was just, like, flowing everywhere up in the air. It was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah fingers crossed once restrictions ease you can come back there and play like a stand-up show where people can have a party yeah you're based in Mianjin what's the music scene like over there well actually I just moved actually from Mianjin just two weeks three weeks oh. ago but I've li- I was living in Mianjin for a long long time and my experience of the music scene was so beautiful like I had um friends that were running you know, improvisation nights where you just go in and, like, there would be a band set up and you could just go in and have a jam. Like, it was really community-driven. It was quite small as well, but, like, it was – you could get everything you need. Like, if you wanted to just go see some music or if you wanted to, you know, get up and have a jam or, you know, if you needed to record stuff, it was just – it just felt like tight-knit community vibes there, Mm -hmm. which was – it was really beautiful, you know, but I had to get out of Brisbane because there was no ocean there. So, where are you now? I live on the Gold Coast now. Oh, yeah. nice! Yeah, I love that. I love it. I love yeah. it there. Yeah, Mianjin. There's only um, the closest water there is like an hour away. So I had to move out of Mianjin. I'm on Yuga Bear Country now. It's oh, beautiful. Nice. Yeah. How have you seen the scene in Mianjin change? since you started out? Um, I noticed that there's, like, we played this little pop-up show um, called Bad Olive, and the whole festival was run by this amazing woman. I've I've noticed that now um, there's so much more room for women to come through and do whatever it is they need to do, and there's more respect. I've noticed that. Like, sometimes these (coughs) rap bros will just, like, used to treat me so shady, hey, you know what I mean? Like, just talk mm. down to me. Actually, don't even talk to me. You know, let's look down on me. But um, I've noticed that there's a bit more respect and there's a bit more, like, respect towards women within the music industry, within the rap scene and within even just music scene, which I was like, you know, it really needs – it needed to happen. I noticed that. Like, I was really, like, actually proud of these dudes, like, for how, you know, they made these women feel safe and, like – it was like, good job, bro. Like, they're actually like showing some respect now, which was dope, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's a low bar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know, but then I'm just like, ah. Oh. Yeah. yeah. If you yeah. compare it to, yeah, like, what before, exactly. like, yeah. But I'm just like, just be fucking careful, man. I'm watching. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've spoken about how important representation is all throughout your career, especially for queer women of colour to be able to see themselves on stage and how that is in part what drives you to make music as well. Who were some of the artists, I mean, you've spoken about Missy, but who were some of the other artists that you looked to for inspiration early on? Um, I feel it was definitely like a lot of Missy, only because Missy just like, she also dressed like in such an androge way as well, mm. which was fucking dope. Um, I think I guess like 
the brat style was really dope for me. Like I was always trying to fit, find out where I could see myself, you know, really trying to like find it. And I guess at the time I was only listening to fucking So Fresh CDs. So <laughs> <laughs> it was a, I didn't have much of a pool to pick from, you know what I mean? So I would definitely say like, yeah, it was, it was like, I can't even think of anyone else because I'm, it's definitely Missy. Like, the way that I was like, fuck, if she can do this, like, maybe, maybe I could do this. Maybe there is room for me, you know what I mean? Mm. So, yeah, I think as I got older and, like, I accepted myself more and, like, knew who I was and had, like, had that, didn't have, like, feeling shame about who I was, I think then I would see other people just, like, even walking down the street. And I'll be like, oh, my God, I love what you're wearing. Like, I want to wear that. You know what I mean? I guess it wasn't even like a a, f- a fame thing. It was just some people that I even saw walking down the street. And I was like, oh, the way you can walk with your head up high down the street right now is, like, really inspiring to me, you know? I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm keen to talk about the visuals yeah. um, that you've been releasing alongside the singles from Tropics. Um, so you've put out music videos for Venom and Medusa and they paint this like super powerful picture of like, I don't know, it almost feels like a Pacifica futurist vibe. Um, and I'd love to know what goes into the visuals behind the scenes. Yeah, see. Do you like the video? I love Yeah. That's yeah. that dope. Like most of the, like we collaborated with um a Brisbane film company, Moonboy. Um it's this guy called Kevin. And he's just like he kills it and Colin as well. Mm-hmm. But we just had like some we were just having some yarns about what we could do for this and they sort of had some ideas and then I was like all right I've got I've got this idea and I was like but let's make it like this you know so it was really like a team vibe and uh, we got um like even painting the outfits in Medusa we had like all these people come over like Cesar, Hannah, Mara and they were just hand painting all the outfits you know like hand drying it with a hairdryer like (laughs) it was pretty like we just you know we didn't have much money or anything but we just tried to make it the best we could like how we want it like all the plants we just chopped down from you know took them from the garden in brisbane for the <laughs> better so one good. just like glue gunned like carry shells into some old glasses <gasps> you know like we we're just like because we knew that they could film it like in high quality and like anything mm. would like it would look good like the visual of like having the tropics and the cowrie shells and you know the little bits on people's outfits it will look great like and all it was was just painting on the medusa one like letters onto pants and Mm. it just worked really well and then the effects it's very effects heavy you know they just smash it out with the effects yeah but yeah it was great because i was like holy shit i get to create the visuals now to this music which is like Mm. yeah i just remember sitting there like watching it watching and watching i was like maybe this could change maybe that could change like you know (laughs) but i didn't want to butcher it or like make it like medusa i just when it was done i was like yep that's mad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This works. Yeah. 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 Um, do you think you're going to continue kind of that creative process when it comes to making visuals? For that? sure. For sure. Like I will always, I feel like I'll always have that, like be the creative director of all my videos because it's very, like it's very important to me because it's still like the making the music is so personal to me and very important that it has to be with you know the videos as well like and I always speak up and that's another thing I've learned how to do is like speak up and say no when you know people are trying to force their ideas onto you Mm. (laughs) so it's I love it like we were filming this video the other day like can you do this that's like no (laughs) (laughs) and I felt powerful and I was good because we had some you know younger Pacific Islander girls there too and I wanted them to see that they can say no you know, mm. they don't have to get forced into doing stupid things. Like, I was like, I'm not going to do that. Thank you. <laughs> totally. I was like, I love everything else, but I'm not doing that. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's important to, like, I will always be doing that. Like, I and, you know, I always want to work with people that, like, I know as well. So, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you feel like you have a favorite track that's maybe not a single that's on the ep yeah xxl is my favorite track because 
I, I read that one actually when just before Brisbane went into lockdown. Actually, I think it was in lockdown. And I just, I, I originally wrote the lyrics over a um, Tokyo's Revenge instrumental. And I was just going to put it on Instagram. Yeah. Just like, oh, it could be a cool little freestyle vid or, you know, studio vid. And I was that's my favorite one because it's just like all bars. And it's like, it wrapped up my whole three years in that one song, you know, when I'm talking about going to hell and back, you know, but I still roll the dice. It's like, I went through this such a rough time, but I still keep going, you know? Yeah. And then, yeah, I love that song, how it is. Fuck, that's a good song. <laughs> I just, yeah. it's, it doesn't even have a, like, chorus, really. It's just, like, two minutes and 15 seconds of, like, straight bars. Yeah. Which is just, I just can't wait. I can't wait for, like people to hear that one yeah and that's the video that we were filming as well oh huge yeah we, we collaborated i don't know if i can say this i'm just gonna say it anyway with house of slay oh my god as well yeah and benji ra oh she killed it she killed it always yeah i got one uh-huh. it's like ah i'm still buzzing now from it like yeah. we wrapped up last night oh. huge when does it come out um i think like the tw- like in two weeks. Or okay, something. nice. Yeah. yeah, watch this space. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> watch this space. Ah, I can't wait to like see the first edit too. Oh, yes. Yeah. So good. I guess speaking of lockdown and writing that track in lockdown, obviously, needless to say, last year was fucking weird. Um, <laughs> you were kind of talking about like growth and self-love and I feel like that came to the fore for a lot of people last year. How was last year for you? Um, It was pretty intense. Like I had a, in a way, like I had so, like I had a pretty busy year planned for 2020. Like I, this project was going to be released then. Like um, I was going to be touring lots and it sort of like when it all stopped and like, you know, that all went away and, I was doing youth work as well at the start. I was like trying to trying to get by, and then that went away too. And I was like, "Holy shit! Like, where's what's my identity outside of music?" You know, like. Mm. And I was like, I've focused so much on this one thing, and it's just like, what about who I am? Like, you know, I know music is like part of who I am, but it's not all of who I am. Like, do I love myself? Like, you know, like it was a lot of, I just internalized everything. And I just sat, some days I just wouldn't talk to people. And I just sat like thinking about stuff, thinking about my whole life as a whole. And I went and I was like, when I figured out that I don't have that like self-love, like I tried to do lots of things for myself that um, nourished myself. And I did like some healing sessions with a healer. just did heaps of counselling, it was mad, you know, went to the ocean, like, yeah, actually talked about how I felt rather than holding it in, Mm -hmm. like, it, that, then I was like, oh, I get why this is happening to me, you know, like, you know, when you can't see it, I was like, why did this all go wrong? And then I was like, oh, this is why, this is, I needed to do this, because if I didn't do this now, like, and there's a really beautiful thing I was talking to my healer about, Um, I think it is... Native Americans as well, when healing happens for them, they see it as going back seven generations. Wow. Yeah. And then um, also forward to seven generations. So when you do that healing and intergenerational trauma as well, you're actually healing seven generations back. Like that's what they believe. And I was like, wow, that's powerful. You know, like that is so beautiful, like to do that. So yeah, she told me that the other day. I was like, Hey. Yeah. Because people amazing. are just carrying around so much pain, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, it's really hard. It's, it's, I think that's what I noticed so much. Like, the lockdown for me was, you know, in ways very hard, but in ways, like, very beautiful. And I was actually lucky enough to be in a place that wasn't so heavy restricted. Mm. Like, unlike, you know, Melbourne, Melbourne was hit really hard. Like, I'm, I also was lucky to have a backyard, like... So I had grass and sun. That's what I was doing every day. Just get out, get the sun on me. Yeah. Like roll around in the grass. (laughs) You know, like do all that shit. Yeah. Yeah. What a time. (laughs) How was it for you? Like how did you? Uh, Look, it was okay. I feel like I was a little bit the same in that I 
did have a lot of growth and like it was as awful as it was for the world and yeah. still is. Like yeah. I think personally it was a really good circuit breaker for me to just slow down a bit yeah. and like, yeah, work out what I was. I mean, I was working all throughout, um, but kind of working out what if this job went away or like what if I didn't do radio anymore um, or make stuff like what, what else is there for me? And, you know, I think for me that's like my friends and, you know, reading books and listening to stuff and like it was good to be able to recenter a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's it's weird, I think, especially in this day and age, like being confronted with the fact that like, I don't know, none of this shit matters. Like capitalism could crumble at any second and then what do you have after that? That's so fucking true. Or like – the internet you know mm. imagine that when that's gone and like we have to all talk to each other oh that's what gonna are we gonna do yeah. yeah yeah but i would be excited to see what happens because yeah. i feel like there was a lot of healing like collective healing that happened last year yeah um yeah and i hope that we can hold on to some of those when things. we go back into the circus yeah the role of life (laughs) (laughs) for real though yeah you mentioned outside of music you're um a youth worker um running music workshops for young people in the outer suburbs of Mianjin or you were at least could you tell me a bit more about that work yeah so I got into youth work because um I just started volunteering at the youth center I went to you know what I mean like when I was younger like I went to Headspace and I like, did heaps of programs there and stuff, and that really helped me. And they were free. And plus, you could go and get free food. So I would always go there, and it was beautiful. And they would take you, like, on day trips and stuff. And they, I noticed there was, like, at the youth center that I went to, there was a lot of, like, um people that were older, but they would come through and just, like, talk to you and just, like, you know, that also been through similar shit to you. So it was nice to talk to them. And then I just started volunteering there. When after I, you know, I got older, and then yeah, youth work is something. Doing music and youth work, I always saw myself in these young people I was working with as well. Like it was pretty much like me. Like you know, so we would just hang out. I would record songs. Like we just jam, you know. And it wasn't so like, um, like clinical or in a way. And like it was just we would just jam and then talk and write music, you know. And some of the young people I was working with is just so talented and just like no one no one gives you a chance you know you always get overlooked and kids they think at your school that you're just gonna be a bad kid a naughty kid it's like you have no idea what's going on at home you have no idea about that you know like teachers just it's like the start of it for you when you're younger and you're in these systems of these schools and that's how they start treating you so you get shy and you don't even know how to speak like you don't talk up but then when you act out it can be in anger or it can be in like you know because it feels like no one's listening to you so I always wanted to create a space that I would have loved when I was younger as well is where we can just jam and talk and nothing's too hard nothing's you know we're just jamming out yeah and I, I love doing I love it though because it's like you're working with community and it's like also so beautiful to see like some some of these young people are just like can do everything like so talented and it's like out of this world i'm just like fuck you could be a superstar like you are a superstar you know what i mean but yeah i always used to it was hard though when i because i was like doing so much music i was like oh like i i really need to choose one because i can't go in and out of their lives like this because you know it's it's too much, so I had to just sort of choose music in the end. Yeah. But I really want to, when I've got, like, my feet on the ground in the music industry again, I would really love to start my, some of my own programs and stuff for youth because I think it's just so important, you know. And it's also just what needs to be done mm. as well. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Jess, well, we are pretty much at the end of this chat, um, but there's one question that we ask all of our guests on Race Matters. When did you realize there was power in your race? Um, I feel like I'm just realizing it every single day as well. Like even when I do, like when I perform my music videos, I'm just like, 
fuck yeah, I'm powerful, hey, like, this is mad, like, I'm so proud of who I am, you know, and I think that's, like, I just, I, I want to give my baby self a little hug and be like, you got this, like, you can do this, you know, you were powerful, you are beautiful, you are staunch, you know, so yeah, I'm, I'm realizing it every day and reminding myself of that power every single day, but I, I would love to send that love to my little self as well, because... I don't know, sometimes when you grow up, it's just like you don't realize how fucking staunch and powerful you are. So yeah, every single day we're realizing we're powerful. Oh, I want to give myself, my baby self a little hug and tell, tell him he's okay I and know. powerful too. We should all do that. We should all do that. Um, oh, such a nice chat, Tanya. Thank you. Um, yeah, that is Jess Wilde when she realized there was power in her race. You are listening to Race Matters right now. My name is Daniel Sargas. I'm Tanya Ali. And yeah, it was just such an absolute pleasure speaking with such a staunch, incredible artist and human. I just feel like we covered so much ground. Let's take another track from Jessua's forthcoming EP, Tropics, out on March 5. This one's called Medusa. Whoa, baby, you that money maker. We coming for the checks. We coming for the paper. People say, take money, money, take money, money, money. Take money, money, take money, money, money. Whoa, baby, you that money maker. We coming for the checks. We coming for the paper. People say, take money, money, take money, money, money. Shop blues, dollars for my use. I ain't making sense if my dollars all used. Shit, I ain't paying rent if my dollars all used. And in a few years, we bought a porn shop new. Bitch, I come in too. Tell them lames make room. Take my chain, take my clothes, take my shoes. Bottle shop Q, yeah. Drug dealer school, yeah. I'ma show you what a beast really do. Growing up like Nike checks are the best. I finesse, work hard for the chest. Nike checks are the best, we finesse. And I cash, and I take, and collect. I'ma be on the TV, mama. Seven rings, and a brand new burner. I'ma be on the TV, mama. Watch me do it, watch me do it, watch me do it, yeah. This is Race Matters. Uh, I'm Darren Lasagas. I'm Tanya Ali. And Darren, do you remember last year in our first one-hour show uh, when we talked about organisational accountability and spoke about our experiences here at FBI and the painful road we had to tread to get Race Matters to where it is today? Do you remember? Uh, I remember that, yeah. A little bit, (laughs) a little bit. Um, No, but seriously, I, I honestly think about it nearly every day. Um, and it's not, you know, an experience that's unique to us. A lot of people, um, uh, go through it and, uh, people of color, um, more so, um, because there is a sense of questioning yourself, um, that gets set in motion by, you know, racially antagonistic experiences or kind of, you know, um, experiences of being gaslit that you don't realize are happening in the moment, but you start to question yourself over and over and over and you don't realize you're doing it. Like I'm still looking back on times in the past year or so where I'm like, Oh, that's when I held back. Or that's when I told myself that I wasn't right for that when, you know, I might've been, if I had been given the opportunity. Yeah. Or like, Oh, that moment I wasn't the problem. Like that was a messed up moment. Yeah. It takes a while. I have not been able to stop thinking about that Well, I do think about it every day pretty much as well, but especially over the past two weeks because of a special series of a podcast called Reply All that just started rolling out. This is a story of how things so often go in media. If you work in media, and frankly, in a lot of other industries, you've either seen this story or been a part of it. If you haven't seen it, you were definitely part of it. Yeah, so that is from a series called The Test Kitchen. The series is in four parts. Two are yet to be released. And because of what we're going to talk about in a second, don't know if they're ever going to be released. So the series details a specific account of workplace racism through the lens of a bunch of people of color working at Bon Appetit, which is a food magazine owned by Condé Nast uh, operating over in the States. The person you just heard from is Shruti Pinamanini, a senior reporter at Reply All. And this series, The Test Kitchen, was also produced by PJ Vogt, one of the main co-hosts of Reply All. So... Reply All is published by Gimlet, a pretty massive podcast company that's recently been acquired by Spotify. 
And this week, Eric Eddings, former co-host and creator of The Nod, which was a black-created podcast also published by Gimlet, took to Twitter in a damning thread that called out both Shruti and PJ for creating pretty much exactly the same culture at Gimlet that there was at Bon Appetit that they speak about at length in this special podcast series. And... I don't know. I think it's hit me particularly hard because like this podcast series meant a lot to me. I mean, just last week, Darren, I recommended it to you multiple times. You did. You were adamantly. Like, you're like, this is us. You have to listen to this. Like, this is us on this level. Like it happens at every level. And I haven't listened to it because I'm just shit at podcasts. Um, like listening to them. Yeah. I'm okay at making it. No, um, <laughs> no. And I apologize. But then you were like, actually don't. Yeah. So yeah, on Wednesday, when this thread came out, I was like, oh shit. And like, so to go back before the thread came out, listening to the first two episodes with no real knowledge of this stuff that happened and is happening behind the scenes at Gimlet, I felt really affected by the test kitchen. Oh, I kind of knew about it peripherally. Like I knew this was all going on. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Wait, at Gimlet? Oh, no, no, the Test Kitchen stuff. Oh, yeah, Obviously, Bon Appetit. Yeah, 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 yeah totally, yeah. because the... So Adam Rappaport, yeah. the dude who um, was, like, the head... I don't even know what you call it, like, senior editor. No, yeah, yeah. editor-in-chief, something like that. Yes. Um, he basically got called out uh, in the midst of the Black Lives Matter resurgence um, because he was found to be doing brownface. It was really offensive. And then he um, had to step down. Yeah. Um, so it, yeah, it was kind of, it made the news in a big way. Totally. Um, but yeah, the way that this podcast series, The Test Kitchen, is put together, for one, as a podcast audio nerd, it felt like <laughs> just really good journalism, storytelling, like super people-centric, high-quality production, the type of thing that I aspire to be able to make and facilitate other people making. And then two, as you kind of touched on, Darren, yeah, it felt so deeply, depressingly familiar. This is stuff that you and I have talked about at length, things that have happened to us time and time again here at FBI and at other workplaces, they like refer to the universality of what happened at Bon Appetit a lot throughout those first two episodes, as you heard before. It's the type of racism that's hard to put into yeah, words. Totally. Like difficult to speak about to people who haven't experienced it as well. And I think one of the things I was most excited about with the series was that cool, like this does it really well. You can get the white people in your workplace and in your community to listen to this and be like, I, I can't tell you this story, but hearing all of these other people tell it to you might actually get it through your head. Yeah. In saying this, knowing what we know now and what we don't know, but like I imagine the story is going to continue to unfold over the next while too. There are so many parts of the first two episodes of The Test Kitchen which were like almost almost red flags before, like not quite a red flag, but I remember being like, huh, this is a little bit strange. And now they're just simply red flags. Like this from host Shruti Pinamanini opening the first episode and series. So the first time someone in my life used the phrase person of color to describe me, that was about six years ago. I was at the small gathering and a friend of mine who's Asian referred to both of us as women of color. And I said to her, no, we're not. I'm Indian. You're Asian. Six years ago. Like, what? come on, Shruti. You're an adult. Like, I, I'm just like, okay. But yeah, so when I first heard that, I was like, oh, that's a little bit strange. Like, but anyway, she does expand on it. But then this is a part a little bit later on in this opening monologue to the podcast that was definitely strange to hear. If you'd asked me before last summer, so before June of 2020, if you'd asked like, for you personally, Shruti, what does it mean to be an Indian woman in the workplace? I would have said it's mostly fine. Because back then, I didn't really want to think of my race as a disadvantage. Like, I preferred to focus on how it actually helped me. You know, I, I definitely benefited from the ways that I fit into American stereotypes of Indian people. I do work hard. I am pretty good at math. And I'm very good at fitting in. I'm sure you can tell from my excellent American accent. <gasps> So, okay. Oh, this, yeah. Yeah. So, like, at the time I heard it before I'd heard any of the rest of, like, the test kitchen, let alone all of this other stuff going on, I was like, okay, in some ways I can kind of relate to this. Mm. You know, that's how yeah. I felt it's in high school. It's code switching. Exactly. It's, um, yeah. 
Yeah, but now looking at that after listening to both episodes in full, reading all of the commentary, this almost feels like a preemptive, like covering your ass move of like, I didn't get racism in all its forms until George Floyd's murder and until working on this story for eight months, which raises the question, why was this your story to tell? Like the fact that it was this like educational enlightenment project almost for her potentially is kind of messed up to think about. It sounds like she has benefited from her proximity to whiteness this entire time. Yeah, listen to that, having not listened to these in full, it's sus. I, uh, as you said, like, it kind of centers her experience of racism in a way that invalidates other people's. I totally get the, you know, I'm adaptive, I, like, fit in well. Yes, that is a, um, a skill that, as people of color, we have to learn but it's also something that we uh, suffer detriments from when it means that we're, you know, placated or things are used against us without our knowledge in regards to our race. Mm, 100%. So after Eric Eddings's full thread, PJ ended up kind of doing a Twitter apology being like, I'm going to step away from Reply All. And Shruti also did a notes apology. And she referred to this part of the second episode of The Test Kitchen, where she kind of does slightly acknowledge what went on at Gimlet. The company where I work, Gimlet, had its own version of these problems. The white people who ran the place hired people of color promised them change that never quite seemed to materialize. A group of employees tried to fix the place themselves, and eventually things ended up as these things often do, in a union drive. Plenty of people joined that fight. I did not. To the extent I talked about it, I talked about the way that their fight was stepping on my toes. It took eight months of reporting on Bon Appetit for me to see how wrong I was about all of that. And if I'm honest, I'm still processing the anger that I feel toward myself. I wish I'd made different choices. But I also think that ideally, employees shouldn't have to make those kinds of choices at all. Choices like that end up defining our jobs when the people in charge have not done theirs. Because after all, they are the ones with the real power. So does that sound a little bit like she's letting herself off the hook, Dad? (sighs) I don't know. It does. Yeah. Eight months it took. Of working on this story where you're actually interviewing and, like, making people relive their trauma. Like... What what does she mean by stepping on her toes? Like, she's done the hard work and therefore she shouldn't be, like, put in this group of people who, like, are trying to gain power by acknowledging something that she's never experienced? I potentially feel like it more means, like she was already doing work and she wanted to be able to continue doing that work that didn't relate to like bettering the experience uh, for like of the workplace for everyone. Uh, She just wanted to keep doing her stories. Uh, And I think maybe she felt like she didn't want to be bogged down in that fight, but yeah, apparently according to Eric Eddings, um, you know, she actively fought against the union. Like, It's a bit strange, but yeah. Anyway, I think that the other maybe more productive conversation all of this raises is one surrounding accountability, you know, the complexities of it and how we need to talk about those complexities. Because here in this situation and in so many other similar situations, like where workplaces and people within them are reckoning with the pain and trauma they've inflicted on people of colour, the damage is done. So then the question becomes where to from here? Where to post-acknowledgement of the role that you played in that damage and how can we prevent this stuff from happening over and over and over again? And, like, look, I don't have an answer. It's something that we're working on here at FBI and, to be honest, I think it's an everyday, ongoing, constant work that's going to need to be done forever. Like, this stuff won't go away. It's people in power opening themselves to constant learning, checking themselves and letting go of defensiveness when people are trying to hold you accountable. Creating a workplace culture in which everyone, no matter your level of seniority or how long you've been at any organization, can speak up if something feels off and be taken seriously and listened to. 
I don't know. I don't know if that sounds just totally idealistic, but that's where I'm at. Is that so much to ask for? I mean, come on, we can do it, guys. If we just work together. Um, I've seen some really boring takes actually on Twitter about like how none of this would ever happen in Australia. Like, and I think, I mean, it's kind of hard to understand what it means because it is just the most lukewarm take, but I feel like it meant that like we're so far behind even this kind of like uh, quasi accountability, but I feel like we shouldn't be striving towards something like this. We should yeah. be striving towards making it better. There's so much artifice. There's so much performance in this, especially in this industry, like a podcast about a podcast about a podcast. Like, <sighs> that's why I can't keep up, Tanya. <laughs> I know, I know. I went deep, Darren, so you didn't have to. You're welcome. <laughs> I have to just re-listen to this episode. <laughs> that is all for Race Matters this week. I'm Tanya Ali. I'm Darren Lasagas. Uh, big thank you to our guests today, Jeswa. Uh, you heard audio from Tamika Tai and Alicia Johnson as well, and to our Queen Sada Khan for hosting that conversation. You can't speak for us. Uh, don't forget you can listen to the whole convo at fbiradio.com slash race matters or wherever you get your podcasts. And that is also where you can find all episodes of our show. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next week. Race matters. 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 Race matters.